Happy Easter. Man, it is a great day to be in the house of God. I, I want to tell you, this week we had an absolutely amazing miracle. He's going to shoot me for telling this, but his wife made me so they can deal with it later. Uh, but this week, one of uh, our dear members, uh, Martin Fontenot, had a major heart attack Thursday night? Thursday night? Thursday morning. And I got a phone call early that morning, and he had, you may have heard this term, widowmaker. Uh, it's the worst kind of heart attack a man can have. Um, 100% blockage in his left ventricle. Did I get that right? Yeah. You're right. You ready to kill me right now? It's okay. Blame her. Um, and, uh, and yet, uh, they got him to the hospital. The doctors put a stent in, and he is here today worshiping you. Now, the doctor said six more minutes, and he wouldn't be here this morning. Six minutes. And, uh, but, man, some of us are celebrating today. Others are celebrating today. Amen. Martin, we're sure glad you're here, man. I'm going to segue now or try to. Uh, I want to give you three quick principles and then we're going to dive into the Word of God. My guys will help me on the screen. Three truths, uh, three laws of harvest. The first one uh, is we reap later or after we sow. Galatians chapter 6, verse 9. And let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. The principle of farming is you don't reap and then sow, you sow and then reap. The sowing has to come first. Uh, you can't have a tree that did not begin with a seed. You can't have a plant that did not begin with a seed. So we have to sow by faith that that seed is going to reap a harvest. The second law is this. We reap more than we sow. Luke chapter 6, give and it will be given to you good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be put into your bosom. For with the same measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. So whatever you put in, in, in it, we reap more than that. One seed turns into a plant or a tree that produces a great harvest. So whatever we put in, God wants to multiply and give back to us. Third law, uh, we reap in proportion to what we sow. 2 Corinthians 9 and 6, whoever sows sparingly shall reap sparingly, but whoever sows gen generously will also reap generously. So it's up to us. Our sowing and our reaping uh, is proportion to, to what we, our reaping is in proportion to what we sow. Uh, so I want to challenge you today as we remember what Christ gave for us. Don't forget to, to give back to God, to sow back into his kingdom and trust and know that he is going to multiply your seed and give back to you. It's tithe and offering time here on Easter Sunday morning at Triumph Church. If you're watching online, there's an opportunity there for you as well to be a part of our giving. And uh, I hope that you will do that as well so that God may return to you. While you're preparing your gifts, 
Um, on your way out the door, you will receive today, you might, some of you might already have gotten it, a brochure that looks like this. Uh, it says Triumph DC on the front, and it talks about our mission that God has given us for this next season, and that is to build a Triumph Church in Washington, D.C. We're so very excited about that. If you take one of these, you'll find all kind of information in there, uh, things you can know, things you can pray for, a little bit about our, our vision, our mission, and how we're going to get it done. And uh, so take one of these on your way out, if you would. And uh, also like us on Facebook. I would tell you to get out your smartphone again. But uh, last week I told you to get out your smartphone and like people on, like Triumph DC on Facebook. And somebody's phone rang. So let's, we won't have a repeat of that. Um, but like us on Facebook. We're trying to get 1,000 likes by the end of the day today. I think we're pretty close. Uh, so make sure you do that. All right. If you have your gifts ready. I'm going to ask you in a moment to hold them up to the Lord, and the reason that I'm going to do that is because the book of Hebrews chapter 6 and 7 tell us that even though our offerings are being uh, uh, accepted or, or we are bringing them to the church into the hands of mere mortal men, they're actually being received by our high priest in heaven, which is Jesus Christ. So yes, we give to the church but it is God who is receiving it, and it is God who is responsible for multiplying it and giving it back to us as his word promised. So we hold it up to the Lord just as a sign to say, God, this is for you. This, this is for you. Sound good? Hold your offerings up to the Lord today. Father, I thank you for every giver and every tither in this room today, for every person who's chosen to trust you, to put their faith in you, and, and that as we give, as we sow, we know that we're going to reap a great reward. We're going to reap a great harvest, oh God. It's going to be in proportion to what we give, but it's going to be greater than what we give. You're going to multiply it because that is what you do. I thank you for every family, for every in this house. Let, let this be a house of 100% employment, uh, of zero debt, and where God has provided more than enough. I thank you for it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Ushers, you may assist us at this time. I want to take a moment and welcome all of you who are watching online. I hope that you're enjoying the service today, that you're celebrating Easter and the resurrection of our Lord. Uh, it's a good time to know Jesus. And uh, I want you to get still and quiet, get ready to receive from God today. I believe he wants to touch your life. I believe he wants to do something for you. Maybe he wants to set you free. Uh, maybe he wants to deliver you from something that's uh, been going on in your life. I believe that today is a day of resurrection power. And he's going to touch you today. Grab your Bibles with me, if you will. Turn to Luke, the 22nd chapter. We'll skip around to a few different verses today, but we will mostly stay right here in Luke, chapter 22. Uh, the other verses, don't worry about turning there. You can just follow along with me on the screen. screen. Luke, chapter 22, verse 63. If you're there, say amen. Let me give you just another moment to see if you Bible is still turning. Luke chapter 22, verse 63. Now the men who held Jesus mocked him and beat him. And having blindfolded him, they struck him on the face and asked, saying, Prophesy, who is the one who struck you? And many other things they blasphemously spoke against him. As soon as it was day, the elders of the people, both chief priests and scribes, 
came together and led him to their council, saying, If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, If I tell you, you will by no means believe. And if I also ask you, you will by no means answer me uh, or let me go. Hereafter, the Son of Man will sit on the right hand of the power of God. Then they all said, Are you then the Son of God? So he said to them, You rightly say that I am. And they said, What further testimony do we need? For we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. The title of our sermon today is simply, It is Done. It is done. Father, I thank you for your presence. I thank you for touching us. I thank you for allowing us to stand here and to worship you today. I thank you for what your son Jesus did, for sending him to die on a cross for our sins. I thank you for resurrecting him from the grave. I thank you for giving us life and life more abundantly, Father. I'm forever, forever grateful. I worship you today. Pray that you'd open our hearts, our minds, and our spirits to hear from you and to be challenged by the power of your word. Touch us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A few years ago, my son, who's only five now, he was a little younger, was in his class. It was around the Easter season, and they had been learning about Jesus and the resurrection and the cross and all these things. And so he was in his Bible class, and they were having a testimony service. And uh, came around, and, you know, they were saying whatever little kids do, thank my mommy, because, you know, Jesus touched my mommy, and she gave me some extra piece of candy today, or whatever it was, you know, got an extra cupcake today, or whatever it was that they were thanking God for. But my son, the theologian that he is, decides to tell his testimony. And he said, they took me up to the top of the bridge, and they shot me dead. But I rose again. (laughs) I think he was a little confused on his story. I I think he was mixing up a little bit of Jesus with a little bit of G.I. Joes and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles or whatever else he was watching. And he got it all confused, but he was convinced that it was his. He was convinced that it was his story. He was convinced that it was the truth. You know, the story of Easter is the greatest story ever told. It's the story of a man who gave his life for the world. It's a story that changed history. It's a story that has impacted billions of people over the last 2,000 years. It's the greatest story ever told, but it's also the most important story ever told. It's more important than who we are, who our parents are, where we grew up, how we met our wives or our husbands. It's more important than the story of our children. It's more important than the story of how you got arrested that time back in high school. It's more important because it affects every area of your life. It can free you from your past. It can deliver you from your current struggles. And it can assure you of a future in heaven and life more abundantly. You see, Randy was convinced of his story. He was convinced of every detail. But are you convinced of what Christ did for you? Do you really know and do you really understand? Are you really convinced? Let me ask you this question. I'll put it to you like this. Have you ever got a compliment from someone? They tried to compliment you and you didn't believe it, so therefore you didn't accept it? You know, you know, husbands, when your wife is getting ready and you're going to that dinner party or whatever, and she gets all dressed up and she comes out and you say, you look beautiful. That dress makes you look so skinny. And she calls you a liar right there. And she says, no, I don't. You're just saying it because you have to. And you're like, no, no, I really mean it. But she doesn't accept your compliment, right? 
Now, men, we're very different. Wives, if you tell us something, we'll believe it. Okay, you, you, you say like, um, uh, you know, yes, I absolutely love picking up after you all the time. We believe you. We, we, we just do. You, you, you say things like, uh, yes, absolutely. Let's go over to spend time with your family for the fifth time this week. I would love to do that again. You say things like, uh, no, honey. I wouldn't change anything about you. And we're like, okay, I'm perfect then. I'm just, because we believe you when you say things like that. Uh, we, we believe you when you say that you love watching sports with us day after day after day after day after day. So let's do it again. We believe you when you say, I won't get mad at you if you say I look fat in this. We, we believe that for some reason. But for those of us that have gotten compliments that we just didn't believe ourselves, therefore we couldn't receive it, you will understand what happens with Jesus. Jesus comes to us and says, you're saved. You've been made righteous. You've been made as if your sins would never happen. But we can't believe him. But Jesus, you don't understand. If you really knew who I was, if, if you really understood the things that I had done, you wouldn't say that about me, Jesus. No, 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 no. And what we are doing is we are literally saying to Jesus, you're a liar, and I don't believe you. We need some convincing. We, we need to realize that Jesus is serious about our salvation. Because if we're not convinced, we never really know where we stand with God. We pray, but we have no faith that he's going to answer us. And our unworthiness eventually steals our joy and takes our strength. In John chapter 16, verse 8, Jesus said, And when he, being the helper or the Holy Spirit, has come, he will convict the world of sin and of righteousness. The word convict there is exactly what you think of when you say convict. It's a courtroom term. It means that your case went before a judge and a jury and, and attorneys were arguing before, for you and against you. All the evidence was presented. And at the end of the trial, the judge came up and pronounced you guilty. He convicted you of sin. The Holy Spirit convicts us of sin in our life. When we leave, when the Holy Spirit is done with us, we know that we are sinners. But here's what else the Holy Spirit convicts us of. Because he doesn't just convict us of sin, but he convicts us of righteousness. He convinces us that we are, okay, yes, you were convicted of sin, you did do all that. But then the next, thing, the next trial that happens is Jesus steps in and says, yes, I know all these things. I know that they did it. I know they are sinners. I know all that has happened, but I am taking all of that on myself, and I am giving them my righteousness. And so just like the, the judgment came down and said you were convicted of sin, the same hammer that drops, the same judge that convicts you of sin, convicts you of righteousness and says, now, no. Not only were you a sinner, but now you've taken on the righteousness of Christ, which means that you are in right standing with God, which means that you can go to the Father without any worry, without, without any sin upon you, but I am made righteous. And so when Jesus says that, that we are made righteous, when he went to the cross for us, we can't stand here and say, no, 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 you don't understand. No, Jesus understood. He had seen the worst of the worst. He understood sin. He had dealt with it. He had, he had seen when he stood looking into the cup, he saw your sin and he saw my sin. And he went to the cross and he said, I'm going to go and I'll take your sin. You take my righteousness. 
But are we convinced that he did it for us? Are we convinced that, yes, he's a good God, but could he do that for me? Is it, is it enough? We need some convincing because I don't want to look at Jesus and say, Jesus, thank you for the cross, but, you know, that wasn't really enough for me. But I want to say thank you for the cross, Lord, for the price that you paid for dying and for coming up out of that grave that I might have life and have it more abundantly, that I might be forgiven, that I might be set free, that I might have the resurrection and the life that you promised. And know that I have that. I want to ask you four questions today. Uh, four questions that every one of us must face, every one of us must ask, and in, in, in an effort to understand, are we convinced? Because I believe, the, the, uh, as my dad says in his most theological term, the preponderance of the evidence leads us uh, to, to know that what Christ did for me, he also did for you. The first question we see from the book of Luke, 20, chapter 22, verse 63, uh, he says, Now the men who held Jesus mocked him and beat him. Most of my life, I had understood that when Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, it was the Roman soldiers that actually arrested Jesus and took him straight to prison. That's not actually the case. How many have been watching the Bible on the History Channel? Okay, a lot of you have. Um, I'm absolutely loving it. At the same time, it's not the most accurate thing I've ever seen on the Bible, uh, but I'm absolutely loving it. Uh, and, uh, my, and, and Lindsay and I just sit down and watch all, all of them. I can't wait to watch this evening. It's a great show. But if you watched last week, you noticed that it was not the Roman soldiers who arrested Jesus, but it was actually what the Bible says, and I believe it's in verse 52 uh, of this chapter. He says it was the temple captains or the temple guards and the scribes and, and the chief priests. They're the ones who actually arrested Jesus, not the Roman soldiers. Now, eventually, he's turned over to Pilate and the soldiers, but right now he is with uh, the chief priests he is with the scribes in verse 63 he's with the chief priests the scribes and the temple guards he is with religious people this is not pagans that are doing this to Jesus right here this is religious people this is people that served in the temple of God every day that had devoted their life to God, and yet now they are mocking him and beating him. This word beat here literally refers to uh, how an owner would beat mercilessly a slave in that day. They would beat them in order to inflict their will upon them. That's what they were doing to Jesus. But notice they said they were mocking him. This is an interesting word here because we, we kind of understand the word mock, but the, the Greek word here is bigger than just mocking. It actually uh, means that they were playing childish games with Jesus in an effort to embarrass him, to humiliate him, and to belittle him. Most specifically, the, the closest game that we have to what they were doing is what we would call charades. You know when you're mimicking something and trying to get someone to guess what you're doing? You know when you say like three words... It's a movie, you know, and you know that no one has ever played charades. Okay, it's just me. If you're watching at home, I hope you have played charades. 
this is the closest game we have to what we believe that they were doing. When they were mocking Jesus, they were playing games with him, and they were literally um, doing things and impersonating him in an effort to belittle him and embarrass him. It is, it is believable and quite possible, theologians tell us, that they were standing before Jesus. These religious men were standing before Jesus, and one of them would act like he was blind and couldn't see, and he would be moving all around, and then someone would come up and touch him and say, Be healed, and, and his eyes were open. He would dance around as if he had just gotten healed of being blind, but they were doing it in an effort to mock Jesus. One of them might have been flopping around on the ground like, like the, the man who was filled with demons. And then, and then another one came up and said, come out. And then he just totally went limp. And then he stood up and said, thank you. And, and another one uh, might have laid and drug his leg around or acted as if he was a leper. And he saw Jesus heal him and clean him. And then he, and then he danced around as if some great miracle had happened. But it wasn't to really celebrate Jesus. It was in an effort to completely humiliate him and make him as if it had never, he had never done the things he had said he had done. The, question, the first question I have for every one of us in this room is this. Are you playing games with Jesus? Are we playing games with Jesus? I'm talking to religious people here now. I'm talking about people who go to church. I'm talking about people who understand God, but we are playing games with Jesus. Maybe we go to church. Maybe we go through all the motions. Maybe we understand what it means to be there on Christmas and on Easter and other times of the year. But in reality, we have no relationship with the Savior. We have no relationship with Jesus. We're just playing games with Him. If we do go through the motions, it's just the motions. It is not about relationship. It's just about doing what we're supposed to do. We're playing games with Jesus. This is a question. For every person who calls himself a religious person, are we playing games with Jesus? This wasn't a question for the heathen. This was a question for you and I. Are we playing games with Jesus? Second question we get from the life of Peter. Now, Peter, after they arrested Jesus, the other disciples fled. Peter decided he was going to kind of stay close because he wanted to see what happened with Jesus. He wanted to stay beside him. He had just told everybody when Jesus said, you will deny me three times before dawn, before the rooster crows. He said, I will never deny you. Even if I'm arrested, even if I'm thrown in prison, even if I'm put to death, I will never deny you. So he kind of stays close to Jesus, and he's, and he's kind of back in the shadows, but he's watching because he wants to stay there with Jesus. He wants to be with Jesus. And then suddenly, we see here in chapter 22 in this verse, And a certain servant girl, seeing him as he sat by the fire, looked intently at him and said, This man was also with him. Peter responds. Peter doesn't respond. What's verse 57 say? <laughs> I didn't give you that one. My bad. But he denied him saying, woman, I do not know him. What I find interesting about this situation with Peter is he had made this big deal about how he wouldn't deny Jesus. He never would. Jesus, I'll never deny you. And then just a few hours later, he denies Jesus three times. This is the first. Two more immediately follow. He denies Jesus three times. And he is within eyesight of Jesus. 
We know this because in, in verse 61, it says, And the Lord, being Jesus, turned and looked at Peter. Then Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he said to him, Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. So, so watch. He is within eyesight of Jesus and yet denying him. He's not far away. He's close to Jesus. He is in proximity to Jesus, close enough that Jesus heard what was going on and turned and looked at him, and suddenly Peter forgot. How in the world, Peter remembered, how in the world did Peter forget that Jesus had said he was going to deny him three times? How did he forget that? How do you forget that you made this big deal? And yet he did, because suddenly Jesus looks at him and he remembers, Oh my, I said I would never deny you, and yet I've denied you three times. And Peter runs away crying and weeping bitterly. The second question that we all have to answer is this question. Are you with him? Are you with him? And this is a question for those that really do love him. Because this wasn't, a, this wasn't an issue of Peter's love for Jesus. This wasn't an issue of his, of his love and his relationship and his sacrifice to Jesus. He really did love Jesus. Remember, Jesus said when he was telling them, him this, he said um, in verse 32, he said, But I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail. Now, Jesus has already said, you're going to deny me. Okay, that's going to happen, Peter. But in the process of you denying me, I don't want your faith to fail. And when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. Jesus knew, first of all, you're going to deny me. But secondly, I'm going to speak over you that your faith wouldn't fail. Because the next thing that's going to happen is you are going to return. Notice when. He didn't say, and if you return, strengthen your brethren. No, no, no. He said, when you return. Because Peter and Jesus had a relationship. Jesus knew that when Peter said, when, when Peter said, I'll go to prison for you, I, I'll even die for you, Peter was serious about that. Now, he missed it on this occasion. But I assure you that in the course of Peter's life, he was thrown in prison for the sake of Jesus. And not only that, they said, we're going to crucify you for the sake of Jesus. And he said, you can't crucify me like my Savior. Crucify me upside down. So they literally hung him upside down. So Peter didn't lie either. He did get a chance to do all those things he said he would do but in this moment his fear was stronger than his relationship with Jesus he was scared for his life he, he was scared that they would persecute him, that they would, that they would uh, hang him on a cross right next to Jesus, that they would throw him in jail, that they would arrest him. That, that he didn't know what was going to happen, and his fear was greater than the moment. And, and, and so the question is, are we with him? Not when we're with all, of our, all the other disciples. Not when we're in the middle of a church service. Not when Jesus had a crowd of 5,000 men, not to mention women and children, that he was feeding. And they were all chanting his name and wanting to make him king. Not when, when the miracles were happening. That's when it's easy to know Jesus and love Jesus. What I'm talking about is, are you with him when everyone else is against him? When you find yourself in a situation where no one else loves Jesus. Where it's not the cool thing to do. Where it's not the acceptable thing to do. Where everyone else is mocking him and making fun of him. Do you still want to be with Jesus? I'm not talking about do you love him. 
I'm talking to people who do love Jesus, but have moments of weakness where our fear overcomes us, scared that we too might be rejected, scared that the, the people we value may turn away from us, scared that we may not get the promotion at work if they find out how much we love Jesus, scared of all the things that might happen if, if people really knew who we served. Are you with him? Not just in here. It is easy to be with Jesus in these four walls. Are you with him when you're outside? It's a question that we all have to face. For those of us that love Jesus, we all have to ask this question. Are we with him? Well, that leads us to the third question. In Luke 22, verse 66 and 67, the, the chief elders and the, the chief priests and the scribes, they asked Jesus a very important question. If you are the Christ, tell us. If you're the Son of God, if you're the Christ, tell us. Pilate asked it like this. If you're the King of Jews, tell me. Are you the King of the Jews? Saul points back to the same question. And Jesus' answer is a very unique one because he doesn't really answer the question that they're asking. He just makes a different statement, which he commonly did. And he says, if I tell you, you will by no means believe. Watch what Jesus is saying here. Jesus is saying, I am who I am. And whatever you do to me, whatever I say to you, doesn't change who I am. The only thing that changes is your belief. And I'm not going to answer you because you won't believe me anyway. Because Jesus is the Christ. They couldn't change that. You can't change that. I can't change that. I can't get tired of using the name Jesus one day and say, you know what? I want to make somebody else the Christ today. <laughs> Wouldn't work that way. Because Jesus is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He is the king. The term Christ means the anointed one, the, the, the Messiah, the chosen one. It's literally a term from the Hebrew that was often used uh, in the anointing of a king. So they would anoint, they anointed Saul king or they anointed David king. You'll remember when, they, when Saul was in the cave and he was hunting for David and David had an opportunity to kill him. David said to his men, I will not touch God's anointed so the term Christ, when they, when they said, are you the Christ, they're saying, are you the Savior, are you the Messiah, are you the King that is supposed to come and bring salvation? And Jesus was coming to bring salvation, just it wasn't salvation from the Romans like they thought. It was salvation uh, from, uh, he was going to save us from our sin, from our own depravity, from our own bondage. He was going to release us from that. And they couldn't see this. He was everything that they had been praying for and hoping for. That they went to the temple every morning and prayed for the Messiah to come. And here he is and they couldn't see it because they didn't believe. Jesus says, why is it that you call me Lord, Lord? This is in Luke chapter 6. Why is it that you call me Lord, Lord? And yet you do not do what I say. Because for every person, him being the Christ is more than just a title. It is his relationship with you. Him being my Christ won't affect your situation. He won't save you. won't deliver you. He's got to be your Christ. He's got to be your king. He's got to be your savior. He's got to be your Lord. He's got to be your Messiah. So the third question is, is he your Christ? Understand something. 
one day we will all be standing before the throne of judgment uh, and the enemy will be laying out all of your sins. And the question is going to become, did you believe in Jesus? Did you live for Jesus? Did you have a personal relationship with Christ? And, and you may open up your mouth to give all kinds of excuses. Well, I meant to go to church, and I tried to go to church, and I, 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 was, I served faithfully, or I paid my tithes, and all these things, but those things won't come out of your mouth. It's just a simple yes or no question. So you can open up your mouth to give this great dissertation on your life, but nothing's going to come out except for the truth. And you can open up your mouth to lie and say, well, yes, I did, but the truth will come out. And if you did not have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, yes, will not come out of your mouth, only the truth. And your judgment will be sealed right there. It won't matter that you were a good person. It won't matter that you had good morals. It won't matter that you loved a lot of people. It simply matters, is he your Christ? This is the question that every person, the sinner and the saint, must uh, deal with. We must answer, is he my Savior? What is he to you? Is he your Christ? Is he your Savior? It's a very simple question, but the answer is the most important answer you'll ever give in your life. Is he your Christ? Is he your king? Do you believe? Finally, we see in John chapter 19, Jesus has been hanging on the cross for hours, and he is, for, for the last three hours at this point, he is, uh, the darkness has covered the earth. It, it, it's, a, it's a wild moment that is happening right here. And Jesus, is, he's done all he can. And he finally says in verse 30, So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. It was finished for Jesus. His work on earth was done. His mission while on the earth was completed. There was nothing else for him to do on the earth. Uh, it was done for him. But the question is, for you, is it done? Is it done for you? Yes, Jesus came and he died, but is it done for you? In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 17, reading from the New Living Translation, And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless and you are still guilty of your sins. Understand something. The cross, uh, it didn't stop there. If Jesus had not been raised from the grave, we would still be guilty of our sins. This is what Paul is saying right here. But he did get raised from the grave. Uh, we see in verse 20, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, and he is the first of a great harvest of all who have died. Ladies and gentlemen, I want you to understand something. He did come back from the grave. He did come back to have life, and that's what we're celebrating here today, is he may have died on Friday, but on Sunday, he rose from the grave. And because of that, we are not still guilty of our sins as long as we turn to him. The job is finished. It is done for each one of us. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. He redeemed us. He brought us back. He set us free. It is done for you. Uh, he overcame the world. He overcame death. He overcame sin and weakness and sickness and fear and doubt and shame and every burden. He overcame all of it for us. Ladies and gentlemen, you have to know something today. It is done. It's all been overcome in Jesus' name.
our team is going to sing one song. And I want you to allow it to speak to your spirit. And then I'm going to come today and we're going to close. Is it done for you? To Calvary when all was lost, you made a way. Yes, you did. You prayed for us and took the weight of all we done and you. You are the reason we can say it is done, it is done by your blood, it is done, you have overcome. Yeah. 
It is done for you. And it is done for me. But Paul used this term redeemed when he said Christ has redeemed us. It's a powerful word. It's a word that came from the slave market of the day. Slave trade was commonplace. Anyone who was anyone had slaves, bought and sold them, treated them poorly. As a matter of fact, one of the Greek scholars uh, had set the tone when he said that slaves should not be treated even remotely as human beings, but they should be treated as tools with which we get jobs done. They should be traded and bought and sold like livestock, like oxen, like donkeys, like cattle. Uh, They should be traded like tools, hammers, and nails. This is how we should treat slaves. Don't even treat them like a human being. You own them. Use them to get your job done. As a slave, you had no hope. You had no future. There was no way out for you. You were a slave from the day you were born to the day you would die. Your parents were slaves, and your kids would be slaves. But one day you went to the market, and you were up for sale. You were a slave wrapped in chains. And as you stood there, And people were examining you and your health and your strength as if they would any other product. They were arguing over you whether you could do the job or not, whether you would work for them or not. Some said you were worthless. Some said you were valuable. Either way, they were going to own you. A man stood up in the back and he said, I'll buy you. And he paid the price for you. Thoughts go through your mind. Is this going to be a good owner? Is he going to beat me or is he going to be kind to me? But this man came bringing your papers and he literally began to write and sign things on them. You're illiterate. You don't even know what they say. But, but he wrote and signed his name and he handed them to you. And then he unhooked your chains off of your hands and off of your feet. And he said, you're free to go. I bought you for the sole purpose of setting you free. That's what Jesus did for us. And when Paul uses this term redeemed, that's what he's saying. Christ bought us for the sole purpose of setting us free forever. For to say it is done in your life. And you can be convinced that, yes, you may have been a sinner. I'm convicted of my sin, but I am also convicted of righteousness. And Christ set me free. And no one can put me back in bondage again except for myself. So I'm free. The enemy has no power over me. But he defeated him on my behalf. It's done. It's done for me and it's done for you. He set us free. I want to ask you to close your eyes for just a moment. If you're watching at home, please do the same. Here is the question. Are you playing games with Jesus? Or are you serious about a relationship with Him? Are you with Him? Not just in the church, but outside of these walls. Are you with Him? Or do you need to return to Him?
Jesus said to Peter, when you return. Today is a day of returning. And then finally, is he your Christ? Is he your Christ? Is he your Savior? Is he your God? Is he your Lord? Is he your King? Today I want to give you the opportunity to make him your King, to make him your Lord and Savior. If you want to do that today, if you want to get in right standing with God, you want it to be done for you, I just want you to slip up your hands. I want to pray with you. Just slip your hands up. If you want to give your life to Jesus again, if you want to get a fresh start, there are hands going up all over this room. If you're watching at home, just slip your hand up if you want us to pray with you. There's a few more hands that need to go up. There's a few more fresh starts that need to happen today. A, a little bit of a do-over. All right. You, may, you can put your hands down now. I'm going to ask every person in this room and watching online to repeat this prayer after me. Dear Heavenly Father, forgive me of my sins. Thank you for sending Jesus to die on a cross for me. I believe that he rose from the grave, that he had victory over death, and he set me free. It is done for me. I am righteous because of Jesus. I love you, Lord. Amen. That's it. It's done. It's done. It's done. It's done. No matter what the enemy tells you, it's done. Now you can receive that compliment. When he says, I've made you righteous, you say, ah, thank the Lord he sure did. You don't have to say, no, you don't understand. No, no, he understands it's all covered. He forgot it all. Because when God justifies us, that doesn't mean he pardoned us from our sins. That means he made it as if we had never sinned. So when we say to... When we say to God, but... But you don't understand, God, I, I, I did this and I did that. He literally looks back to us and says, no, you didn't. You never did that. You're covered under the righteousness of my son, Jesus. You never even did. You never were that person. It never happened. You are a new creation in Christ. It's done. In a moment, I'm going to ask our pastors to elders and elders to come, our prayer partners to make themselves available and I'm going to open these altars because there are some of us in this room that feel like my son said that we've been brought up to the top of a bridge and somebody shot us dead. They ran us over. They messed us up. Maybe it was a broken marriage. Maybe it was uh, uh, financial struggles. Maybe it was uh, that we have a sickness in our body, a disease in our body, and we are needing help. I want you to know that the resurrection power of Jesus Christ really will raise you up again. The same power that brought Jesus out of that grave is available today. Whatever it is, whatever it is in your life that you need help, God is here to help you today. He didn't just die so that we could have salvation. That would have been enough. But it was more than that. He wanted to set you free from everything. Everything. You heard the song, every sickness and every trial and every disease and every burden and every struggle and every shame, you're free from all of that.